may be seated. At some point, you just have to decide, don't you? That there are certain decisions in life that come to a moment in which a decision can be delayed no longer. You can date and date and date and date, but at some point you've got to decide whether or not that's going to be your wife or not. At some point you've got to make a decision as to whether or not that's the person that you're going to commit and enter into covenant before God and spend the rest of your life with. I know of some people who can miraculously take a four-year degree and spread that baby out over about 12 years trying to figure out what you're going to do for the rest of your life. But at some point, you can only delay that degree for so long. At some point, you've got to choose. At some point, you've got to make a decision. When we come to the disciples in Matthew chapter 16, decision day has arisen. The day of decision has come and they are going to have to decide, they are going to have to resolve once and for all who this man Jesus is. They're going to have to make the determination as to whether or not this is one worth dying for, one worth following all the way to the cross, or if this is one who is indeed a false teacher that they should back away from. More than one scholar calls Matthew chapter 16 the most important chapter in the book of Matthew. And it is in fact a hinge point in the, a hinge point in the ministry of Jesus on earth as we see him pressing ever so closely to the, to the cross. And Matthew chapter 16 is perhaps most crucial for the disciples of Christ and whether or not they will determine and decide that he is in fact the Messiah, the Savior sent by the Lord himself. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to begin in verse 1. Would you stand with me as we prepare to read God's word together? Matthew chapter 16, we're going to go through verse 12. God's inerrant word reads, And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees 
and Sadducees. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant word this morning. You may be seated. So Jesus is, ends a remarkable and merciful ministry to the Gentiles and he gets in a boat to go to Magadan, to a region that is predominantly Jewish, departing from the region that was predominantly Gentile. And as Jesus gets in the boat and he goes to the other side, it, the, there is a contingency of Pharisees and Sadducees that are waiting on him. It's as if they know that Jesus is coming and they are there waiting to pounce on him. Now this is interesting in and of itself because of who the Pharisees and the Sadducees are. We hear, we, we've heard of them being used in the Gospel of Matthew already, but what we should understand is that the Pharisees and Sadducees are not friends with one another. They, they, they are not pals in the parliament. In fact, they represent two completely different approaches to Judaism. They they represent two completely different understandings of the Old Testament law. They represent two completely different worldviews. And so you have these two prominent worldviews among the Jews who make up the Sanhedrin. And they are here together. This is the Republicans and the Democrats. Okay, This is two groups of people that are bitter rivals in every sense of the word. And see everything through a completely different set of eyes. There is always tension between them. There is frequently fights among them. They wish the other would go away all the day long. Okay, are you tracking with me? And yet, what do we see right here? They're in unity together. They're in unity together. They are going together, probably a contingency from the Sanhedrin itself, and they represented are both the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Unfortunately, there is nothing that unites fallen humans like a common enemy, is there? And so that's the case with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They come not because they like one another very much, but because they dislike Jesus so much. And so they have joined together to come to Jesus and to discredit his ministry. And having come to Jesus, they come and they ask Jesus for a sign from heaven. See, in Jesus' day and in the Jewish culture, it was not uncommon for a prophet of God to do what appeared to be miraculous. Or what, in fact, was miraculous. We can even think about Elijah calling down the fire from heaven. We can think about Moses raising the staff and the Red Sea parting. And so what they're trying to distinguish here is whether or not Jesus is a fraud, maybe he's some kind of prophet, or maybe the Messiah, maybe. If we give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. And so what they do is they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus settled this once and for all. Would you just settle this? Would you just give us some sign from heaven that would allow us to know that you are him? If you you want us to follow you, if you want us to submit to you, if you want us to believe all of these things that you're saying, settle it right here, right now. The Sanhedrin is here. The Sadducees are here. The Pharisees are here. Call down fire from heaven. Rain manna from heaven. Do something that will make it indisputable. And Jesus utterly rebukes them. Jesus utterly rebukes them. Jesus says, you know what? You might be able to look at the sky and know the weather. You might be able to to read the night and read the morning. But you wouldn't know God if he were standing right in front of you. You've missed the signs of the times. 
You've missed that there is a new era being inaugurated. You have missed that the Christ is right here walking with you, living with you, that you are speaking to him. You have utterly and totally missed him. What kind of sign do they need? What kind of sign do they need? In the thousands, people are being carried to Jesus on mats and then walking home on perfect legs. In the thousands, people are having to be guided by their friends to Jesus because they cannot see and they cannot perceive where he might be. And then they are going home having seen clearly the face of the Lord Jesus. People that have never heard an audible sound in all of their lives are coming by the thousands to Jesus. And in an instant, they are hearing the gracious and merciful and kind words of the Savior as they have been perfectly, miraculously healed by the Savior. Not only is Jesus performing miracles, but his miracles are not random. His miracles are in perfect fulfillment of Isaiah 29 and Isaiah 35. Passages given to the Jewish people, given to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That they might know what to expect from the Messiah. That they might know what to look for in the Messiah. Jesus is fulfilling them perfectly. And then there is Jesus himself. They are asking for a sign when the greatest of signs is standing right before them. Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus came from the line of David. Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem. Jesus was in perfect fulfillment of all that God has said. And here he was right in front of them. And they had rejected him. What sign would they need? What did God have to show them? Was the testimony of the 40,000 on two different occasions that Jesus fed with nine loaves of Jewish rye not enough? Was the testimony of the tens of thousands that could come and talk like the Canaanite woman and speak of demons being cast down and blindness being resolved. Was that not enough? What would it take for the Pharisees and the Sadducees to understand who Jesus was? And maybe for some of us who are accustomed to the ministry of Jesus, this rebuke almost seems a bit strange. Jesus has not seemed reluctant to do the miraculous, has he? Jesus has not seemed to do and perform miraculous signs when they've been requested by him. We can think back just to a couple of weeks ago in the Canaanite woman who comes and her, one, her daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And Jesus comes and she pleads with Jesus and cries out to Jesus. And in persistence, Jesus sees it. And not only does he perform the miracle, but he commends her faith. But now the Pharisees and the Sadducees, so maybe there's a part of you, you're hearing this, and you're thinking, well, Jesus, you did it for the Canaanite woman. You did it for the tens of thousands. What big deal would it be for you to do it for the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Just get them off your back, Jesus. Just get them off your back. Just, just finish this. And I think there's a lesson in there for us. Because what are the Pharisees, what's the difference between the Canaanite woman and the Pharisees and the Sadducees? What's the difference? The Canaanite woman came to Jesus because of her faith. The Pharisees and Sadducees have come to Jesus because of their unbelief. 
The Canaanite woman came to Jesus because she was convinced that only Christ could deliver her daughter. Only Christ could make her well. Only Christ, the son of David, cried out as the Messiah of Israel could make right what had went wrong. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, they are convinced that Jesus, in fact, is a fraud. The word test there, it says that they came to test them. That is the exact same word translated as tempt in Matthew chapter 4 when Satan takes Jesus out into the wilderness to tempt him. They are tempting Jesus to go outside of the will of the Father to prove to them on their terms who he is. Because they are convinced that he is utterly and totally fraudulent. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees are not like the Canaanite woman saying, whatever it takes, whatever you will do, let me bow at your feet. Let me be a dog that you might make my daughter well. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are saying the opposite. They're saying, if you're really the Christ, if you're really who you claim to be, prove it on our terms. Let us show you what you're going to do. Let us tell you how you're going to work. Let us tell you what your ministry is going to look like. And if you will hit our formula just right, if you will do A plus B equals C, then maybe we'll talk about believing. Maybe then we'll talk about following after you. You see, signs are often our way of telling God that he's going to operate on our terms. Signs are often our way of telling God that he's going to operate on our terms. Maybe the Lord is moving in your life and working in your life and you open up the Bible and you read things there and you say, I don't know that I can do that. I don't know that I really want to do that. So you go like the Pharisees and the Sadducees to Jesus and here's what you say. We have a trip coming up to Salt Lake City. There's, a, there's a, an interest meeting next Sunday. So maybe you'd say, Lord... I'll go to Salt Lake City if you will make my pencil levitate right here in front of me. Like if you will lift this pen and it will go, then I'm in Jesus. I'm in radical faith, baby. I'm on the way to Salt Lake City. Get me on the plane, buying some tickets, let's go. Right? But if not, I think I'll hang back and eat some Popeye's chicken. They ain't got chicken out in Salt Lake. Just just prepare. No chicken biscuits in Salt Lake. I've, I've searched far and wide. Or, or maybe you have a friend at work, and you know that, that what they need is to hear the gospel from you. You know that they are far from God, and that they are, they, they, if they were, they were one heartbeat away right now from stepping into the midst of condemnation for eternity. And so you're driving to work, and you, it's, it's convicting you, and the Spirit's convicting you, and you're thinking, all right, Jesus, if you want me to share my faith with them today, just show me a sign. Just show me a sign. Let, let, uh, let, let something come on the radio. Let Jesus takes the wheel. Come on the radio right now. If, G- if Carrie Underwood starts singing right now, I'm sharing my faith today. And then Garth comes on. You're like, oh, whoo. Whoo. Thank goodness. Right? What are we saying? What are we saying? Jesus, if you want me to obey, it's going to be on my terms. If you want me to obey, it's going to be on my terms. It's going to be my way. We're going to do this my way, not your way. We're going to do it the way that I'm comfortable with. We're going to do it the way that feels right and feels good to me. In fact, what you're saying is is there are a million reasons why I'm not going to do this, and there is only one reason on my terms that I'm actually going to be obedient. Why should you share your faith? 
Because the Bible has commanded you to do it. Why should you go on to mission? Because the Bible has commanded you to do it. Why should you teach a Sunday school class? Because the Bible has commanded you to do it. Why should you roll up your sleeves in the church? Because the Bible has commanded you to do it. This is God's terms. This is God's ways. These are God's demands. And we are to delight in it as his people. If we require a sign from God, then we, like the Pharisees and Sadducees, are an evil and adulterous generation. It says, God, you will do this my way. I will not do it yours. Brothers and sisters, are you asking God to live on your terms? Or are you living on God's terms? Are you asking God to break down your life and break down your faith your way? Or are you pursuing the Lord with radical obedience already on the table? Take me where I will go. Tell me that as long as I go, you will supply and I am there. So Jesus says, I'll give you a sign. Not here. Not today. But I will give you a far greater sign. The sign that you will see will be the sign of Jonah. That just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Lord Jesus be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. And as Jonah was spit out onto the beach of, uh, uh, to, to go and preach to Nineveh, so will Christ Jesus raise literally from the dead out of the belly of the earth to go out that the world might be set free in him. That will be your sign, the sign of the resurrection. What's interesting about that is who Jesus is telling that to. Don't miss this. Why would Jesus point the Pharisees and the Sadducees to the sign of Jonah? Why would Jesus point the Pharisees and the Sadducees to the resurrection? It hasn't happened yet. Jesus here is predicting that he's going to raise from the dead. And if we could just stop right there, if there's a God that that can do that, I'm following him. Right? If there's a guy that says, hey, by the way, I'm going I'm to die, be buried. Three days later, I'm going to raise from the grave. And then he pulls it off. He's got my attention. Right? But Jesus is pointing them because from this day forward, you know what the Pharisees are going to do? At every turn, in every moment, they are going to conspire to murder him. They are going to conspire to put him to death. And so Jesus is looking at the Pharisees and he's saying, you will put me to death. I will die, but I'm going there because it is the will of my Father. And when I go, I'm not going to stay there very long. The grave is not going to hold me down. Like Jonah out of the belly of the fish, I will rise again by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I will prove you a fool. Why did he tell the Sadducees? The Sadducees were those who did not believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees were those who by very, the very definition did not believe that there was an afterlife. So they indulged themselves now. They lived materialistic lifestyles now because this was as good as it was going to get. So they were going to live it up to the best of their ability. And so Jesus is looking in them and he's saying, one day you will be sad. One day I will go to the cross, but I'm going to rise out. I'm not just going to prove to you that there is a resurrection. I'm going to prove to you that I offer eternal, abundant life forever. And if you do not submit to me, if you do not surrender to me, if you do not repent of your heresy, you will be proven a fool. Now look at us today. 
and I think of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they were not able to interpret the sign of our day. And I ask you if you are. Can you interpret the sign of today? You see, the position that all of us hold is far greater than that of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus was pointing them forward to something that has not yet happened. Jesus was pointing them forward to the sign of Jonah. Jesus was pointing them forward to the resurrection. But all of us live on the other side of the resurrection. All of us live on the other side of history. All of us are on the other side of the 500 plus witnesses that laid their eyes on the resurrected Christ. All of us know not just what Christ has said, but what Christ has done. History has proven that the grave could not hold him down and death could not defeat him. And so all of us are in a position now far greater than that of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Can you read the signs of the times? Can you read the signs of the times that the Lord Jesus is raising up a church and filling them with his spirit that they might promote his glory to the ends of the earth? Are you reading the signs of the times? Because you see in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus tells Capernaum, a place that had been there and played, made, been witnesses to his miracles, witnesses to all that he has said, And he said on the day of judgment, it will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah, the very region that God uses to illustrate the vengeance and the the difficulty and the anger of his wrath, the city that God destroyed by sulfur and fire. He says the day of judgment will be better for them than for Capernaum. Because you saw it with your eyes and you rejected it. You heard the truth and you said no thank you. You witnessed the miracles and your heart was still hardened. Brothers and sisters, do you understand that you will give a greater account than Capernaum? Who will give a greater account than Sodom and Gomorrah? Can I get personal with you for just a second? There are some of your faces that I wake up at night and I can't go back to sleep because I see them. Come here every week, every week. And you hear about Christ. I'm not a perfect preacher. Our pastors are not perfect preachers. But we try really hard to just show you the gospel and show you the truth. And you come every single week and you hear about the cross. And you hear about the resurrected Christ. And you hear about the offering of redemption. And every single week you go out, your heart unchanged. You're no closer to Christ than when you came. If anything, your heart is just harder. Can I ask you something? Teenagers that I have in my mind, adults, grown men that I have pictured in my face that wake me up at night. Can I ask you something? What will God have to say? What will God have to do that you will surrender to him? Do you not see that God is moving in our midst? Do you not see that God is not yet dead? Do you not see that the Christ has come and was raised from the dead and that any pleasure you have in this life is fleeting and shallow and empty and that what he offers you is eternal and real and abundant and good? Look at the signs of the times, friends. Look at the signs of the times, teenagers. Turn to Christ. Turn to Christ that your judgment may not be increased. See the sign of Jonah and offer the Lord your heart. 
what will God have to do for you to repent? Do not be the evil and adulterous generation. Be a generation submitted to the Lord Jesus that you might know what he offers and that you might taste it and its sweetness and its glory and know that everything else that you've ever had is bitter in comparison. Will you come? Will you recognize the sign of the times? Will you recognize the glory of the resurrection and realize that the resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection of all of those who have faith in Christ Jesus, that all of us will rise in Christ and go to the many mansions that he has prepared for us? Will you recognize it today and come to Christ? So Jesus, having rebuked the Sadducees and the Pharisees, he gets into a boat with his disciples and they go to the other side. They go to the other side of the lake. And being in the boat, they, they realize that a discussion appear, apparently breaks out among the disciples and they realize they have forgotten the bread. Okay? Now, the disciples, every glimpse that we get of them is not always the, 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 the greatest picture, right? Jesus is, fill, is, is healing. Tens of thousands of people. Jesus is rebuking Sadducees and Pharisees to their faces. And you can't remember the bread, man. You can't remember the bread. Get the bread, right? And so you can imagine there's probably this kind of discussion kind of happening. Whoever, I, I'm going to guess it was Judas. Judas forgot the bread. That's what I'm going with, right? He was in charge of the funds. Judas forgot the bread. Peter's fixing to throw him into the lake. They're having this discussion. And Jesus sees this as an opportunity. And so Jesus speaks into his disciples and he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Leaven is yeast, right? It's yeast. It's what you use to, to bake bread, to cook bread, to make the bread sweet, to make it rise, to make it, to make it fluffy and great, right? Amen. And so he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the disciples, astonishingly, look back at Jesus and they're like, hey, bro, we got no bread. We've got no bread. What are you talking about, man? Pharisees and Sadducees don't have bread stores. Pharisees and Sadducees aren't running Winn-Dixie. What are you talking about? And it reveals the error in the disciples in two different ways. First of all, they have entirely missed what Jesus is saying. This has been a, a, tr a growing trend, if you remember, through so many of the things that we've read in Matthew 14 and 15. This is a growing trend in the disciples that, that Jesus says things, and they're not particularly cryptic. This is not cryptic. To speak metaphorically is not cryptic. And yet they are missing it. Like this instance, this is like you going and telling your wife that she's hot, and her responding back by saying, I've been telling you to fix that HVAC for years now. And you're like, whoa, you missed it, girl. You missed it, man. We ain't talking about air conditioning, right? This is Jesus looking back at the disciples thinking, we're not talking about bread, y'all. We're not talking about bread. And then there's, a, there's the, the other layer to it. They have literally just watched Jesus feed like 40,000 people with nine loaves of Jewish rye. Right? 40,000 people, and all of them are in argument, pacing back and forth, freaking out because there's no bread. And Jesus says, do you not remember? Do you not yet perceive? In Mark chapter 8, he says, are your hearts that hard? 
you can watch what I can do. You can watch how generous I am. You can lay your own eyes on my might and my power and my provision. And you can sit there and worry about where you're going to get bread. Do you not remember the 5,000? Do you not remember the 4,000? Do you not remember how I have provided again and again? Not only are you missing what I'm saying, you're missing who I am altogether. Your faith is not allowing you to see the truth. Your faith is not allowing you to hear what I'm saying and understand it. And so Jesus rebukes them. Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, you of little faith, how do you not yet see? How do you not yet understand? Oh, you of little faith, can you not just trust me? Oh, you of little faith, can you not just listen to me? Oh, you of little faith, can you not just let yourselves be put at ease that you are in the boat with God? This is the fourth time and the final time in the Gospel of Matthew that the phrase, oh, you of little faith, is used. And do you know who Jesus speaks this phrase to every single time? Every single time. Not to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Not to the crowds that come and go. Not to those people who were amazed at how he can feed them, but then dismayed when he tells them to eat his flesh and to drink his blood. Not them. Every single time, it is the disciples that Christ has chosen. It is the disciples that have committed to leave behind everything and follow after Christ to be fishers of men. It is the disciples who have been front row viewers of the miraculous things that God has done. It is the disciples that Jesus has pulled aside and taught individually and one-on-one. It is the disciples that over and over again, Jesus has to say, you of little faith, why do you not yet get it? And what's amazing is that Jesus doesn't quit on them, does he? Jesus doesn't give up on them. I'm not sure that I could have been as long-suffering as Jesus here. If you're not getting my metaphors... At this point, if you're still worrying about bread at this point, I'm thinking I need to go find some new disciples. I need to go find somebody a bit brighter. Obviously, you and I aren't going to jihad here, right? But not Jesus. Jesus keeps teaching them. Jesus keeps loving them. Jesus keeps revealing himself to them. Jesus keeps explaining himself, doing the things that he has said over and over Showing them what they have already seen. Reminding them of what they have already heard. He even goes back and repeats his exact phrase. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Like, listen to me, guys. Listen to me. Aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't love you or save you in proportion to your faith in him? Aren't you glad? Christian, aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't love you as much as you love him? Aren't you glad that Jesus' love for you doesn't fluctuate as much as your love for him? Aren't you glad that your salvation is strong, that Christ's salvation of you is stronger than your faith is in Christ? Man, you go to the lunch table and and the guys start, start talking about how foolish anyone is that lives like these radical Bible thumpers and you want to shrink back. Aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't save you that little? 
You know that you should share the gospel with your coworker, and yet you know, and you know that is the greatest love that you can show them, and yet you, you shrink back and you cower back and you look for every excuse not to. Aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't love you that little? No, Jesus loves you not in proportion to your faith. Jesus loves you in proportion to his own faithfulness, which is infinite. Jesus loves you not in proportion to your goodness, but in proportion to his goodness, which is infinite. Jesus loves you not in proportion to your capacity to faithfulness, but in proportion to his own capacity for faithfulness. Jesus can never love you more than he loves you right now because his love is perfect. Jesus can never be more faithful to you than he is being right now because his faithfulness is perfect. Your salvation is not fluctuating because the love and faithfulness of Christ does not fluctuate. Your relationship with God is not in flux because Christ is not in flux. Christ's love is infinite, unconditional, irrevocable, redeeming, debt-paying love. Christian, you should rest in that. You should rest in that. And that's, you realize that's why we work, right? The Christian faith is the only faith that doesn't work for love, but works because of love. We don't work because we want to earn the love of God and earn the favor of God. We work because we are those that have already been shown love, already been given grace. And so we go out and we press on in gratitude and passion and freedom. Jesus' love for us is already secure. And you know, disciple makers, there's a word in here for you. There's a word in here for you. I praise God that the Lord is raising up disciple makers at Iron City Baptist Church. He's raising up people that wake up early, that that commit themselves to investing the faith in other men and in other women. He's raising up people who are committed to their word, to the word of God, who delight in the word of God, who want to apply the word of God and to teach others to do the same. He's raising up people that aim to live as Paul, who says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He's raising them up. And for all of you who desire to be a disciple maker, listen to what is happening here. The cross of disciple making is patience. The cross that every disciple maker will have to bear is the cross of patience and long-suffering, you're going to have to repeat yourself. You're going to have to be patient with those that you're investing your life in. You're going to have to be long-suffering that over and over you have to repeat yourself because their faith is not heroic. Their faith is fledgling and you're there to help coax them along and nudge them along and call them back to faithfulness again and again. All of us who aim to make disciples We go in the way of Christ. And if Christ had to repeat himself, and if Christ had to be patient, and if Christ had to be long-suffering, so will we. But as we see in Christ, the, the cross of patience is worth it. The burden of patience is worth it. None of us look for, for opportunities of patience. But it's worth it. As you watch over the next few chapters, as these disciples begin to shift. In fact, even next week, we're going to see a miraculous occurrence as Peter finally professes who Christ really is. So Jesus comes back and he repeats himself. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Like, like guys, woo, woo, listen to me, right here, eyes to eyes. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Can't you kind of get that from Jesus right here? 
And, and, and Matthew tells us that they begin to realize that Jesus is not talking about bread. Jesus is talking about the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. See, the Pharisees were the conservatives. They added to the word of God. They added their own laws to the word of God. Then the Sadducees, they were the liberals. They, they took away from the word of God. In fact, the Sadducees only upheld the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, as being authoritative. They didn't worry themselves about Isaiah and David. They didn't worry themselves about all the prophets and the writings. And you know, every single heresy that has ever come into the church falls into one of those two categories. Those that either take away from the word of God or those who want to add to the word of God. Every heresy... Every false teaching is either like that of the Pharisees or like that of the Sadducees. This is when humans mix their own man-made doctrine in with the pure word of God, Calvin says. And what happens for us, and the reason that he's doing this for the disciples, is you see, they, were, they grew up in the tradition of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So what they had to say sounded good to them. What they said felt good to them. It was like leaven making the bread fluffier and sweeter. It tasted better. It was like leaven that gets into the dough. It, it might start small, but eventually it, it permeates the whole lump. And so this false teaching was Jesus was warning his disciples that they would not taste it and think it tasted good. Or allow it to come into their doctrine and their theology and then begin to corrupt it overall and permeate what they believed. Every corruption of the our corruptions of the gospel start small and they feel good. The prosperity gospel says that if you will give to God, God will give back to you much, much more. Doesn't that taste sweet? Doesn't that sound good? The liberal gospel says that we must make the word of God relevant to our day and help other people. Doesn't that taste sweet? Doesn't that sound good? The forgiveness gospel says that Jesus is just there waiting for somebody, hoping that somebody will, will just come to him so that he can give them forgiveness so that they might go about and live however they want to without worrying about it. Doesn't that taste sweet? Doesn't that sound good? This is how false gospels always taste. This is how false gospels always seem. Listen to me. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus, it matters what you believe. It matters what you believe. It matters what teachers you listen to. It matters who you subject yourself to. It matters because this is the name of God that is at stake. This is the reputation of God that is at stake. This is your understanding of God who is at stake. And if you have submitted your life saying, I'm going to follow him wherever he leads and whatever he wants me to do, it matters that what you believe about him is in fact the truth. See, heresies are, heresies are often poisoned, camouflaged as bread. Brothers and sisters, don't buy every smooth-talking preacher that you hear. Don't, don't sell out to every sweet-tasting gospel that you encounter. Don't submit yourself to every good-sounding thing because much of what you love, much of what you enjoy has been corrupted by a wicked heart. Don't you want to worship God as he really is? Don't you want to worship him as he has actually revealed himself? Don't you want to delight in the truth? 
Any imaginative, any imaginary God that we have created, any imaginary idea of God that we have imagined as people as far short of his actual glory and far short of his actual beauty. Disciples of Jesus, the truth matters. Delight in the Lord as he really is. Delight in the Lord because it is far sweeter and it is far more glorious and it is far more enjoyable, not just now but forever, that he is the truth. Beware of the leaven of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Beware of sweet tasting, good sounding poison that can come to you. Brothers and sisters, on this day, the Lord calls you not just to come, but to come on his terms, to come in his way, to come as his word has revealed. Would you come to him? Let us pray.